Welcome to Fostering Solutions, a podcast that uplifts people and enterprises making positive impact in communities around the world. I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Foster. This special episode of Fostering Solutions is a compilation of two messages I recently shared at my local church here in West Virginia, Ferguson Memorial Baptist Church. They are both about Judge Deborah from the Bible. Take a listen, and I pray that you are inspired by the life of a formidable woman from biblical times. Be blessed. Our pastor is traveling, so I am the assigned speaker for today. Uh, I consider, consider it an honor that I can uh, come before you to, in my own way, proclaim what does said the Lord. Um, so I just thank you. Let's give it up for that. I mean, there were six of them, but they were strong. We thank God for the faithfulness of our, of our choir. So this and faithfulness of, of all of you who have continued to show up um, in the midst of everything, you, you continue to show up. So I, I have a word for you that, that hopefully will inspire you um, in the weeks to come. I greet our, our, our leaders, our diaconate, deaconess, all the officers and members of our church. Father, we just thank you for this day. We thank you that you chose fit to bring us together one more time. We want you to know that we love you and we adore you and we magnify and glorify your holy name. And we just thank you for, for life, for, for a portion of health, and for our strength. We pray that you will be our, with our pastor as he, as he travels, and we pray that you will just show up here today. Let the words of my mouth and the, the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. In the, in the last few years, I've been uh, invited to speak to various audiences about diversity and inclusion issues. I never said I was an expert for some reason. I have no idea why. <laughs> I keep being invited to speak about these issues. Most recently at the West Virginia Business Summit that was at the Greenbrier. And I would you know, tell audiences about what diversity is all about and it's about, you know, tell them that it's about the representation of all of us, of various identities and differences. And it includes, you know, it's all about how we all differ, because we're all different. We're all uniquely made. And it's, it's about um, different characteristics from race to gender to ethnicity, religion, everything. And I've talked about that and about inclusion and what that means and how you know everyone has to create environments where, where we all feel accepted and welcomed and respected. As I was reflecting on what I was to preach today, I was struck by the fact that I haven't been really talking about a lot of women in the Bible. I realize I'm not spending, I'm a woman, but it seems like whenever I speak, I, I, I always, 
kind of lean towards the male figures in the Bible. I realize I have not spent enough time learning and speaking about women, and I need to do better as I, as I, because that is all about diversity, it's all about including all of the voices. So even though I was talking about it in the workplace, I was not likewise doing likewise in the spiritual spaces of my life. So that's about to change. Even though we all are entitled to human rights, women have often, be, have often been treated as second-class citizens. We all should have the right to live free from violence and discrimination, to enjoy the highest attainable standard of physical and mental health, to be educated, to own property, to vote, and to earn an equal wage. But across the globe, many women and girls still face discrimination because of their gender. Across the globe and in these United States, we are treated differently. Gender inequality underpins many problems which disproportionately affect women and girls, especially women of color and girls of color from domestic and sexual violence, lower pay, lack of education, and, and inadequate health care. For many years, women's rights movements have fought hard to address this inequality, campaigning for changing laws, to have the right to demanding rights, and to be respected. We see what happened with the Me Too movement in, in the digital age. When we look at the workplace, when we look at corporate America, the last few years, we've seen women rise to top levels of companies. And an increasing number of companies are seeing the value of having more women in leadership. There's research that actually shows women are, often have better outcomes as leaders than men. So women continue to be underrepresented at every level. We see women in recent weeks who are at the forefront of escalating protests in Iran, sparked by the death uh, in custody of a woman because she broke hijab rules, you know, where they cover their, their heads. And the women are burning their hijabs and, and dancing in the streets. As we looked into the Bible, one woman stands out to me as a wise leader and one who I hope to emulate. Her name was Deborah. If y'all remember, we reading it about Deborah. Wise leaders of any gender are rare. They accomplish great things through others. They are visionary and can see the big picture and that so many others miss, thereby making them excellent at mediating, advising, and planning. Deborah possessed these characteristics. She had leadership skills and she had a, a, a tight and right relationship with God. She is among the outstanding women in history. As the fourth and only female judge of Israel, Deborah was not power hungry. She just wanted to serve God. She gave God the glory and the credit whenever praise came her way. She did not deny or resist cultural norms or what it meant to be a woman and wife. Not that she's trying to, you know, really uh, trip up what was going on at the time. But she was not hindered by those cultural norms. 
Deborah's story is an example of God's ability to, to accomplish great things through people who are committed and people who are receptive to his guidance. Deborah's life reminds us that we need to be available to God and to, available, to be available to others. She encourages us to spend time on what we can do and quit worrying about what we can control. Deborah challenges us to be wise leaders. So today my message is entitled, Women Leading the Way, Lessons Learned from Deborah. Her story is told in Judges 4 and 5. And Judges 4, 1 through 10 will be my focus today. So let's read. And the children of Israel against did evil in the sight of the Lord when Ehud was dead. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, that reigned in Hazor, the captain of whose host was Sisera, which dwelt in Harasheth of the Gentiles. And the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, for he had 900 chariots of iron. And 20 years he mightily oppressed the children of Israel. And Deborah, prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, she judged Israel at the time. And she dwelt under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in Mount Ephraim. And the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. And she sent and called Barak, the son of Abinoam, out of Kadesh Naphtali, and said unto him, Had not the Lord God of Israel commanded, saying, Go and draw toward Mount Tabor, and take with thee 10,000 men of the children of Naphtali and of the children of Zebulun? And I will draw unto thee to the river Kishan Sisera, the captain of Jabin's army with his chariots and his multitude, and I will deliver him into thine hand. And Barak said unto her, If thou wilt go with me, then I will go. But if, you, if thou wilt not go with me, then I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with thee, notwithstanding the journey that thou takest shall not be for thine honor. For the Lord shall sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kedesh, the word of God for the people of God. To summarize what, what, what was going on here, Deborah's story begins like many of the stories in the book of Judges. The Israelites sinned against the Lord, and he sold them out to King Jabin of Canaan. This went on for 20 years until the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help. At that time, Deborah was leading Israel as a judge. She sent for Barak, he was a commander in the Israel's army, and told him to go and fight Jabin's army led by Sisera. Barak said he would only go if Deborah went with him. Deborah agreed, he's a general now. Deborah agreed, that, and, but told Barak the honor will not go to him because the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. When Barak's army advances, the Lord routes Sisera's army, and Sisera flees on foot. Sisera goes to the tent of Jael, the wife of, wife of Heber, because there was an alliance between King Jabin and Heber's family. Jael invited Sisera in and served him refreshments. Sisera was so exhausted, he fell asleep. Jael took a hammer, pounded a, 
the tent peg into Sisera's temple, killing him. So a woman was the one who delivered. The Israelites fought against King Javin until they destroyed him. Deborah and Barak sang a praise, a song of praise, and Israel had peace for 40 years. So Deborah predicted that a woman would be the, the one to, to, to lead them in victory. Today I'd like to share four, and this is probably one of many um, messages I'll share on Deborah, but I've got four key lessons that I'd, I'd like to share with you about what I gleaned about learning from her in this text and just learning more about her background. The first thing is Deborah was unbothered by the fact that she was the only. Often in our lives, we may be the only one in certain spaces. I'm often the only black person in the room. Around West Virginia, I'm usually the only immigrant in the room. And I'm, yeah, welcome to the club, all right. Sometimes I'm the only woman in the room. Deborah was the only female judge in Israel, the only one to be called a prophet and the only one described as performing any kind of judicial functions. Being the only one did not seem to be a big deal for Deborah. She just handled her business and kept things moving. What can we learn from her approach? I'm glad you asked. First, we should embrace being an only. Being the only one in the room can feel like something that is a disadvantage. But that's not necessarily the case. You have to be okay with being the only one. You have been recognized for your talents and a door has opened for you. Embrace it. It is estimated that 70% of, of, of people have a, what they call imposter syndrome, a psychological condition in which you doubt you, your accomplishments and fear being exposed as a fraud, even though you are fully qualified and capable. However, if you were invited in the room, you belong in the room. If you have a seat at the table, place yourself firmly. Don't hang out in the back. Oh. Place yourself firmly at the table. Make it your responsibility to be an integral part of the conversation. Additionally, when you are the only one, dare to be yourself. Often when we are the only one in the room, we feel the need to suppress many of the qualities that make us unique. For years, I remember not, you know, as y'all here know, I, I'm an immigrant, a proud immigrant. I was born in Guyana. My family immigrated when I was 17. Those first years were rough. For years, I, I tried to bury that, but I, would, I came to myself, I can't remember exactly what age. And I'm like, you know what? What I went through as an immigrant makes me who I am. So I will forever be proud of it. So dare to be yourself. Bring your authentic self to every space you enter. It's your competitive and your greatest advantage. When we are the only, we must remember our purpose and the gifts that God has bestowed upon us. God fearfully and wonderfully created us in his image and likeness and equipped us with gifts. You know, we know that whole scripture. Knowing our gifts and functioning in our lane will help us to thrive even when we find ourselves being the only. So like Deborah, don't get hung up 
when you are the only one in the room. Focus on the reason you're there. Ask God to guide your thoughts and your actions and speak your truth. Amen? Yeah. Next thing I learned from Deborah is that she had faith in God. Yes, she was a judge and all that, but she had faith in God. She heard from God and acted as he directed. In verses 6 and 7, we see that where she summoned uh, Barak uh, uh, about the directive from God. When he was, he was reluctant to go. When he was reluctant to go without her, she readily committed to going with him and declared that the Lord shall sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. This was a demonstration of her faith. Our faith, like hers, is in God, not in our circumstances or our abilities. Our faith is in God, not in people. Barak's faith was in, in Deborah, sadly, sad to say, but her faith was in God. Our faith is in God, not in the things we can see with our own eyes. The Lord wants to do far more in our lives and through our witness than most of us are willing to allow. We believe he can do great things, but the problem is that we are not sure he will act on our behalf. How crazy can we be? Consequently, like Barack, we hesitate to trust him fully for specific answers regarding our personal situations. Vacillating between faith and doubt like a boat in a squall, makes for a sick and tired Christian. And aren't you tired of just being sick and tired, y'all? God knows all things, and we can have faith in him. God knew us and had a plan for our lives before we were born. He knows us better than we know ourselves. Isn't that something? He knows us better than we know ourselves. Matthew 10 and 30 tells us that even the hairs on our head are numbered. He knows every inch, every centimeter, every millimeter of us. No matter how carefully we keep, we, we keep secrets from others, we have no secrets from God. Psalms 139, David wrote, you have searched me, O Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. And Proverbs 15 and 3 tells us the eyes of the Lord are everywhere, keeping watch on the wicked and the good. God sees our actions every minute of every day. And even though he knows all about us, good and bad, he still loves us. He has that unconditional love for us. God understands how we feel when we're going through hard times because he knows our thoughts and our feelings. What a comfort it is to realize God knows every star by name. He knows that and he knows each of us personally and loves us no matter what. Warts and all. For the Lord, the Lord searches every heart and understands every desire and every thought and he will not put more on us than we can bear. So recognize that omniscience of God and have faith like Deborah. The third thing is, Deborah was a leader who commanded respect. And whether you have an official leader title or not, that applies to each and every one of us in this room. 
Deborah was responsible for leading the people into battle. She later influenced them to live for God after the battle was over. Her personality drew the people together and commanded their respect. She even commanded the respect of Barak, a military general. He was, he, that, that, that's his job to go out and fight. And he was like, if you're not going to go, I'm not, you know, not going to go alone. I don't want you to go with me. Being a prophetess, Deborah encouraged the people to obey God, reminding us that leaders should also be concerned about the spiritual condition of the people they lead, whether it's leading in the church or leading on the job. Leadership is, is, is a dynamic thing. It's a dynamic condition that can be developed and demonstrated by any person willing to choose to adopt a certain mindset and implement certain key skills and certain key competencies. Respect is not something a leader in the church or in the world can demand or force people to give them. It is something you inspire in others through your behavior. Much can be learned from leaders who automatically command respect. They're not asking for it. They're not going around demanding, you know, you got to respect me. But they receive it. And here, here are a few things that sets them, leaders like, like Deborah apart. Leaders who command respect are dignified. They hold themselves in high standards and are guided by what that said the Lord. They don't engage in gossip and complaining, all that yin-yang and other activities that they, they, don't, they wouldn't want the world to see. They have too much self-respect to join in when others exhibit unsavory behaviors. They feel safe about who they are in God and have nothing to prove. Therefore, they don't, they're not comparing themselves to others. They're not bragging about this and that. They're not name-dropping. Leaders who command respect are trustworthy. They give, you, they give you their word and they keep their word. They don't go back on their word when circumstances change or someone else is asking for a favor. They only make promises that they intend to keep. I'd, I'd much rather, because, you know, working in ministry, you know, there are people who are going to promise and not show. My thing is, it's okay to say, no, I'm not available, I'm not interested, but don't say you're going to do it and don't show up. Don't keep your commitment. They know their own limits in terms of their resources or their gifts, their preferences. And don't tell people what they want to hear unless they really mean it. Don't tell me what you want to, what do you think I want to hear? Just be, keep, it, keep it real. They don't go around talking about people around their back. They also make a, make a point to follow through on all those commitments and don't let themselves forget important things. These days, you got alerts, you put stuff on the calendar, you can have all these alarms, all kinds of stuff, just so that you can remember and keep your words. And I've seen over my career, just being able to keep my word has meant a whole lot, and it's given me a lot of credibility in the spaces where I enter. Leaders who command respect have a strong backbone. Leadership is not easy. Standing up for God is not easy. Leaders who command respect have strong values and high integrity. They live by God's standards and never seek approval or validation. They know how to listen and take input into consideration, but are not easy to manipulate. They focus on doing the right thing according to the word of God rather than trying to please everyone. Because you are, ne you are never going to please everyone. I'm going to tell you right now. 
Regardless of what you do, somebody will be mad about something you said or did. So don't, don't just do the best you can, go with it, you know, do it with a pure and a sincere heart and let the chips fall. Leaders who command respect think of themselves less. They focus on what impact they can have in the church, in the community, in the world, rather than what the world has on them. They are here to serve a purpose. They don't worry about how they may be judged or whether they will get what they, what they want. Their attention is not on themselves. Their attention is on God. Amen? As a result, they are free from all that chronic self-criticism, self-doubt, and, and those irrational fears that we have from time to time. By not thinking of themselves, they exhibit genuine confidence because they know that they are walking with God. Leaders who command respect are competent because they do not pursue titles to boost their ego or, or try to look impressive. They choose positions that fit their expertise and their passion and are in line with those God-given gifts. They want to find meaning in their work and in their ministry and do a good, they want to do a good job. They focus on their strengths and actively engage in personal development, always trying to read and learn, not thinking that they know all that they can know, but always really trying to improve everything that they do. They are high performers who can be respected and even admired for their exemplary leadership and service in all facets of their lives. Leaders who command respect have emotional intelligence. They know how to feel grounded and secure and don't let their emotions control their behavior. They know how to, because sometimes our emotions may want us to, to kind of go up and grab somebody by the collar and shake them sometimes. Or like my grandmother would say, give him a piece of my mind. I give her a piece of my mind. He's kind of tell him off. That's, emo that's when our emotions are out of control. They know how to listen, to motivate, and show empathy. They understand that the people they serve alongside are, the, are their institutions, whether it's a church or work, greatest asset, and they know how to build loyalty. They, ex they express appreciation, give genuine praise when appropriate, as, other, as you see others operating in their gifts. They don't hesitate to help and give of their time when necessary because they're not above it. They're not, they're not too great to sweep the floor, do whatever is needed in a crunch. They also stir up gifts in others and mentor them as they travel the road to their destiny. So it's really, it's, it's, it's all, all of the above, right? Deborah commanded respect and undoubtedly she had these characteristics. Live your life and carry yourself, whether you have a, a title leader on, on you or not. You, you, we all have a title. We're all ambassadors for Jesus, right? So li let's live our lives and carry ourselves in such a manner that we can command this kind of respect without trying to demand it from people. It'll just, you know, we will command it naturally. Finally, Deborah praised God. Judges 5 is essentially a song. I mean, you go home, read it. A song that was likely composed by Deborah and Barak and sung by Deborah. The fact that she was a leader and a highly regarded judge did not block her praise. Don't ever let your station in life hamper your praise. Songs of praise focus our attention on God. Songs of praise give us an outlet for spiritual celebration. 
Songs of praise remind us of God's faithfulness and character. Whether you're experiencing a major victory or a crisis, singing praises to God can have a positive effect on your attitude. Don't be too proud to praise God. And y'all know I cannot sing, but I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make her boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear thereof and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. One of my favorite praise songs from back in the day was I just want to praise you forever and ever and ever for all you've done for me. Blessings and glory and honor, they all belong to you. Thank you, Jesus, for blessing me. Let's sing, y'all. I just want to praise you forever and ever and ever for all you've done for me. Blessings and glory and honor, they all belong to you. Thank you, Jesus. Just want to praise you forever and ever and ever for all you've done for me. Blessings and The doors of the church are open. The doors of the church are open. Let us learn from Deborah by being unbothered when we're the only. Good morning, Ferguson. I'm here before you again. It's probably a record second time in two weeks. But a pastor's coming back, so don't get nervous. <laughs> It's good to see you. And I noticed some people are wearing pink. Uh, we did have this on the calendar, but um, Sister Walker had to be with her son and grandkids this weekend. So we'll have our pink Sunday um, on, fifth, on fifth Sunday. So please wear pink again at that time. But we, we want to have her do her what she usually does as a part of her ministry on that, on that day. So um, that's why we had to push it back. I greet you in the in the matchless name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's my pleasure to be with you today um, to proclaim what does set the Lord. Uh, Father, we just um, 
thank you for this day. We thank you for your people who are gathered here. We pray for our pastor as he travels. We pray that you will bring him back safely, put a hedge of protection around him and keep him safe. For everyone who is here, we, Father, just speak through me. Let me give them a, a word to make it through another week. Father, we just love you. We just adore you. We just magnify and we just glorify you. The words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. So two weeks ago when I, when I came before you, I, sh I shared that I realized I hadn't been speaking about women as much as I, I should. And um, I'm going to continue talking about Deborah today. Uh, last time... I spoke about some lessons learned from Deborah, and as you remember, her story comes to us in Judges 4 and, and 5. And to summarize that, it, it, it begins like many other stories in, in the book of Judges. The Israelites had sinned against the Lord, and he sold them out to King Jabin of Canaan. This went on for 20 years until they cried out for help. At that time, Deborah was leading Israel as a judge. She sent for Barak, a commander in, in, the, uh, in the army, and told him to go and fight the uh, fight Jobin's army led by Sisera. Barak said he would only go if Deborah went with him. Deborah agreed, but told Barak the honor will not go to him because the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. When Barak's army advances, the Lord routes Sisera's army, and Sisera flees on foot. He went to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, because there was an alliance between them, between King Jabin and Heber's family. Jael invited Sisera in and served him refreshments. He was so worn out, he was so exhausted, he fell asleep. And she took a hammer and pounded a ten peg into Sisera's temple, killing him. The Israelites fought against King Jabin until they destroyed him. Deborah and Barak sang a praise, and Israel had peace for 40 years. So I encourage you to learn more about Deborah by being, learn from her by being unbothered when we are the only. You know, it doesn't matter, you know, if you're the only in the room by having faith in God, by commanding respect, and by unashamedly praising God. Today, I would like to again focus on Deborah in a message entitled, Approaching Life Like Deborah. In Hebrew, the word Deborah means bee, you know, the insect that buzzes around. They're bumblebees and they're honeybees. All honeybees are social and cooperative in insects. Honeybees are pollinators for flowers, for fruits, for vegetables. This means that they help them grow. Trying to be like Deborah, kind of, all of these are going to make sense soon. Bees transfer pollen between the male and female parts, allowing plants to grow seeds and to grow fruit. Honeybees, they live together in hives, also called colonies. There's a queen who runs the hive. She lays eggs that will spawn the next hive's uh, generation of bees. 
The queen also produces chemicals that guide the behavior of the other bees. Hives also have workers, they're worker bees. The queen bee, the worker bee, who are all women, all female, and they, their roles are to forage for food, pollen and nectar from flowers. They build and protect the hive and clean and circulate air by beating their wings. So they're working pretty hard. The hives also have drones. These are the male bees, and their purpose is to mate with the new queen. Honeybees have long provided us with honey and beeswax. They also produce honey as food stores for the hive during winter. And lucky for us, they produce two to three times more than they actually need. So we can partake of honey and, you know, that lasts forever. Wasps, on the other hand, they're different. Wasps are often confused with honeybees. While honeybees can attack when provoked, wasps are more aggressive predator of pest insects, especially caterpillars. Wasp species cannot produce honey, but all species of honeybees can produce and store sizable amounts of honey within their hives. While honeybees can sting only once and die after attacking, a single wasp is capable of stinging multiple times. So the first thing I want to tell you in terms of approaching life like Deborah is to be a honeybee and not a wasp. Say, be a honeybee and not a wasp. If you're a honeybee, you will pollinate and help others to grow. For example, through mentoring. One person, one wise person once said, Getting the most out of life isn't about how much you keep for yourself, but how much you pour into others. Although that word mentor or mentoring is not actually found in scripture, the principles when using this, that terminology are found all over the Bible. We see several examples of mentoring relationships taking place, whether it's one-on-one -on -one or one to a group, um, but it, it, can, it can occur in, in different uh, arrangements. We see where Jet, Jethro mentored Moses. Moses mentored Joshua and the elders of Israel. And Joshua mentored the other remaining leaders of his army. Eli mentored Samuel. Samuel mentored Saul and David. David became Israel's greatest king. David mentored his, his army commanders and government officials to establish the United Nation of Israel. David also mentored Solomon. Solomon mentored the Queen of Sheba, who returned to her people with wisdom in the form of Proverbs and applied God's laws. Elijah mentored Elisha. Elisha mentored King Jehoash and others. David mentored Nebuchadnezzar, who humbled himself before God. Mordecai mentored Esther. Esther mentored King Artaxerxes, which led to the liberation of God's people. Priscilla and Aquila mentored Apollos, and this resulted in a much improved ministry for Apollos. And finally, Jesus mentored the 12 apostles who established the Christian church. 
The apostles mentored hundreds of other leaders, including Paul. Paul mentored Titus, Timothy, and many more. Timothy mentored faithful men, such as Epaphras. Epaphras and the other faithful men mentored others also, which led to a chain reaction resulting in dozens of churches in Asia, and ultimately, that's the mentoring chain that is the beginning of our churches today. So mentors stir up gifts in their mentees and help them to grow. Pastor Helliger did this for me, and I, I am forever grateful. I pray that in my 29 years of service in this church and community, I pray that I've done the same for others. Approach life like Deborah. Be a honeybee by pollinating and helping others to grow. If you're a honeybee, you will assemble yourselves with other honeybees and work to build God's kingdom here on earth, like, just like they work together in the hive. You can't pollinate from afar. Hebrews 10 and 25 said we should forsake not the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Be a honeybee. Come together. Work together, worship together, witness together. The hive needs you and all of your gifts. If you are a honeybee, sweetness will ooze from your pores and roll off your tongue. According to Proverbs 18 and 21, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat it thereof. Words have great power to bless and to curse. We have to watch our words carefully. Be quick to hear and slow to speak. There's power in speech. There's life and death in words. We can use words to commend or we can use words to condemn. As a honeybee, we should use our words to commend our brothers and sisters. We should use them to lift them up. We should speak life over them. We should choose our words carefully when we're feeling hungry angry, lonely, and tired. We shouldn't have any deep conversations. We should be refrain from having important conversations because sweetness may not ooze from our pores during these times. Sometimes people on the receiving end of our words may misinterpret them. I know this has happened to me. When this happens, always be ready to apologize, clear the air, and make things right. And we should, and you know, on the other hand, we should give people the benefit of the doubt. Don't always assume the worst. Don't always just jump, oh, she just can't believe what Sister Michelle said. Give, give each other the benefit of the doubt. Maybe that person was, was short with you because they're just having a bad day. Maybe they're just dealing with some issue that has nothing to do with you. Give them the opportunity to make it right. Amen? Wasps are predators that can sting repeatedly. They are aggressive and they don't produce honey. Their tongues speak evil. To approach life like Deborah, let's strive to be honeybees and not wasps. Amen? Second thing I want to tell you is that when approaching life like Deborah, we must collaborate to maximize impact. In Judges 4 and 8, we read, and Barak said unto her, If thou wilt go with me, then I will go. 
But if thou will not go with me, then I will not go. Barak wanted to collaborate with Deborah because he was cognizant of her wisdom, her power, and her leadership. It's not that he was being a, co a coward. He recognized how wise she was, how strong she was, the leadership skills that she had. And he wasn't, he wasn't intimidated by it. He figured, you know, I'll use this for my benefit. He embraced it. And Deborah's quick and humble response is indicative of the, of the fact that she was confident in who she was. She was confident in her abilities. She knew who she was, and she knew whose she was. This was not the time to be hesitant. This was not the time for her to be bashful and say, oh, I don't know. I'm not ready. She moved. She was ready to walk confidently forward into battle because she knew the battle was not hers, it was the Lord's. Collaboration is about bringing our gifts to the table and sharing them in pursuit of a common goal. It's about bringing all of you. Some people, and I've seen this in, I've seen this in ministry, they do one thing at work and then when it comes to like a church ministry, they just wanna do any old thing. We have to be consistent in every area of our lives. It's about bringing all of us, our, our spiritual gifts, our intellect, our passions, our skills, our perspectives, our life experiences, bringing our, our authentic self to address the challenge and to meet the needs. That's what ministry is all about. For collaboration to work, there must be a shared purpose, a shared process, and a shared practice. Purpose, process, and practice. It begins with committing to work with those who have a shared purpose, defined by those who have the shared values, shared mission. Some people say like like-minded people. It's a both and, it's not an either or. You need both values and mission. Consider what, what happens when you collaborate with someone in ministry who share your values but not your mission. Initially, you may sense a lot of personal affinity. You feel, you feel, oh, I can get along with that person. Eventually, however, the experience, you will you know, get frustrated as they work with constantly diverging and different directions. Conversely, if we begin to collaborate with, with someone who share our mission but not our values, we're going to have conflicts in leadership and just how you do things. You're just going to have conflicts. The ends cannot justify the means when the means embody so many different values. However, when we discovered an alignment with both, when we have both values and mission, we discover a worthwhile prospective ministry partner and should collaborate with them for different opportunities. Additionally, collaboration should be defined and, and, and designed through a shared process. So you have shared purpose and you got to share the process how you're going to go about doing things once we find someone who who has our, our values and our, our mission the next question is what are we going to work on together determine together the goals of what of your collaboration what are what are the needs that we are going to meet what like what are, what are we going to address what are what what, what are we going to what resources do we need to make things happen 
Effective communication is going to, is really such a key to everything in, in our, so many things in our lives, especially when it comes to collaboration. As with any healthy relationship, expectations need to be clearly defined. It's like, what do we, this is what we're working towards. Let's make sure we all understand, you know, our expectations. What is, let's begin with the end in mind. Finally, shared practice is needed for collaboration to work. It's another way of saying everyone shows up, makes a meaningful contribution, and keeps their commitment, right? Everyone remembers way back in school, in high school, college, whatever it is, when you know that 80% of the people do more than 20, 80% of the work is done by less than 20% of the people. Some people always, I know this, remember this one guy vividly from college, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna, go. it's like, just do it. Like Nike said, just do it. In 1994, when I raised my hand and volunteered to be the vacation Bible school director here at Ferguson, I had no idea what a life-changing decision I was making. I thought I was just helping because there was a need. But that ministry collaboration was instrumental in me discovering my passion. VBS led the Pioneer Clubs, which led to a literacy program, which led to an after-school program, which led to numerous programs that strengthened thousands of families through KISRA, which led me now being at the helm of the Greater Canal Valley Foundation where we support programs that reach hundreds of thousands in West Virginia and beyond. Throughout my ministry collaboration, throughout my ministry, collaboration was key. I'm so blessed to have had people like Michelle Thompson Brown, Maxine Brown Davis, the late Mike Jones, and Angela Dobson, just to name a few, all of y'all in here can probably count yourself in that number. I was so blessed to have them to collaborate in ministry. Deborah and Barack had a shared purpose, a shared process and a shared practice, which led to their synergy and peace for the, for the Israelites. You see, collaboration brings about synergy, which means that instead of us going off in our own little ways, doing our own little things, by coming together, the impact of our combined effort is greater than what we could each of us, which each of us can accomplish individually. By working with others in ministry, the way Deborah worked with Barack, we can make a greater impact for God. Amen. The third and final thing I want to tell you is that when approaching life like Deborah, we must be visionary. Paul wrote in Ephesians 2 and 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus with good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Regardless of the circumstances surrounding our birth, God has vision for our lives. You are a work of art. You are designed to accomplish great things. The divine architect has laid out some unique blueprints for your life and my life, and no weapon that is formed against us will prosper. Living for God involves discerning and discovering his vision of what our lives could and should be. 
Vision brings clarity and definition to life. Visions bring structure to chaos and confusion. Vision brings inspiration, provides inspiration as we deal with all the challenges in our lives. Vision is like oxygen for our lungs. It's the reason for getting out of bed every morning. Vision drives us and compels us to reach just a little bit further and press just a little bit harder. It keeps us alive and breathing when life and all its disappointments knock us down. It's like that defibrillator that delivers an electric shock in the heart of hope and keeps us walking by faith and not by sight. A vision is a clear and precise mental portrait of a preferable future imparted by God. Deborah's vision is found in Judges 4, 6 through 7, which reads, And she sent and called Barak, the son of Abinoam, out of Kadesh Naphtali, and said unto him, Hath not the Lord God of Israel commanded, saying, Go and draw toward Mount Tabor, and take with thee ten thousand men of the children of Naphtali, and of the children of Zebulun, and I will draw unto thee to the river Kishon, Sisera, the captain of Jabin's army, which his chariots, with his chariots and his multitude, and I will deliver him into thine hand. Deborah had a vision of legacy. She encountered God and changed history. Deborah gathered leaders around this vision and gave them a mission and a purpose to accomplish. Deborah's vision, visionary actions remind me of the prophet Habakkuk, as written in Habakkuk chapter 2. The first part of Habakkuk 2 and, and verse 2 reads, And the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain upon tables. A key strategy towards being a visionary is to write down your vision. What do you want to achieve? Is it a better job? or to enjoy your retirement like some of us who are blessed to already be retired. <laughs> like Brother Steve over there. Is it to go back to school? Is it to kind of save more and reduce our debt? Is it to kind of improve our health, get a little more fit? Is it about spending more time in the Bible? Is it about activating that great commission in our lives that will, will, you know, revive our church. Writing the vision down helps to imprint it on our minds. Our written vision will give you the correct directions and the, the coordinates, the guidance you need to get to your desired destination. It will give you the inspiration and motivation you need to push through life's toughest challenges. And we, we're dealing with some heavy stuff every day. It's one thing or the other. A written vision will motivate you to take action. A written vision will provide a filter for other opportunities and help you to overcome resistance. And when you do write that vision down that, that in, involves a lot of people, make it simple that people can get it. Make it plain that people can get it. Use understandable languages, language that even a fifth grader can get it. 
Creating a vision that is clear and simple to understand will kind of remove and eliminate any confusion and that can kind of hinder your, your movement forward. A vision that, was, that is plain and energized and ignite excitement in everyone who is connected to it. Because the fact that the vision is being written down on tablets or tables means that it's being shared. It's being shared around with everyone. In this example, Habakkuk must have been referring to the vision for a group of people, like a body of believers, like us. For personal visions, on the other hand, I believe that you got to be careful about who you share your personal visions with. Because some of those people who smile in your face and laugh with you and pretend to be your friend may be vision killers. So be careful who you are sharing your vision with. The text said that vision should be written plainly in public so that those who read it will run with it. So that these are the public visions. It's like pulling, putting out a call for a race for those who want to to run and somehow connected with that vision. They believe in the cause, they, they get to the, 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 the right gear, they get you know, the right clothing, the right shoes, and they show up, they eat the right foods, make sure they can you know, sustain themselves, and they go to the starting line. Once there, it's time to run. And it's not only you running by yourself, but the vision will be so inspiring that others will wanna read, run, will read it, and they'll want to run it with you in eager anticipation. Because it, it could be lonely running by yourself. That's why having a team to run with, just like being a part of the hive, going back to that, that's why that is so important. I restarted running earlier this year, and I was so excited about a month ago when I did my first 10K, finished my first 10K. That was a written vision of mine forever. I just have it as like, oh yeah, just kind of kept, keep scrolling. But I finally got it done. And, I, 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 and through a part of that was the coaching that I received from Coach Matt. He drummed into my head the importance of pacing myself in a race. He would always say, easy start, strong finish. That means when you're running, you shouldn't start off at a pace you can't sustain. Don't just go all crazy out, you know, out the gate. It's better to start easy, take your time, then build up speed as you go so that you will endure to the finish line. He also taught us to run our own race. My race is mine, your race is yours. I'm not trying to run your race. At your pace, I'm going to do my race. At my pace, you go ahead and do yours. Verse 3 reads of Habakkuk 2, verse 3 reads, For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie. Though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. This verse suggests that the race to our vision is not a sprint. It's not a hundred yard dash. It's an endurance race. You can't start running for the first time this week and then next week think you're gonna run a marathon. You ain't gonna last. And you can't start running before you see a vision. Verse three gives, no, I, gives us no indication as to how long this race is gonna be, how long the, the, it's gonna take for the vision to speak. 
we are only assured that the vision will in fact speak. So if we kind of break up that, that verse there for a minute, appointed time, this is a fixed time or season, but at the end it shall speak, to puff, that is to blow with the breath of air, to kindle like a fire, and not lie, it will not be in vain. Though it tarry, wait for it. Though it tarry, though it seems to be delayed, wait for it. Though it seems to linger, wait for it. Though it seems to be hesitating, wait for it. So what do we do when this vision tarries? I'm so glad you asked. When we look at chapter 3 of Habakkuk, Habakkuk 3, verses 17 through 19, we, we read this. Although the thick tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines, the labor of the olive shall fail, and the field shall yield no meat, the, the flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he will make my feet like hinds feet, and he will make me to walk upon mine high places. Oh, the wait. Oh, the tarrying. As you tarry for the vision, the situation around you may get rough. As you tarry for the vision, trials and tribulations may come your way. As you tarry for the vision, your crops may fail and your animals may die, which may result in starvation and just great, great loss. However, these external circumstances cannot detract us from our vision. Our faith is in God, not in our circumstances. Our faith is in God, not in people or systems. Our faith is in God, not in the things that we can see with our physical eyes. When nothing makes sense, when troubles seem more than you can bear, remember that God is the source of, the strength, of your strength and the strength of your life. When nothing else makes sense, quit looking around, look up, and turn your focus to God. As we tarry for the vision, when nothing else makes sense, God will give us, just like the scripture says, sure-footed confidence during difficult times. As we tarry for the vision, when nothing else makes sense, God will equip us to run like deer across rough and rugged terrain. As we tarry for the vision, when nothing else makes sense, yet we will rejoice in the Lord. Yet we will praise his name. Yet we will say hallelujah. Yet we will rejoice. Regardless of what arises while we tarry, yet we will rejoice. We may experience unemployment, underemployment, yet we will rejoice. Sickness may raise its, uh, its ugly head. People of all ages are just, it's, it's just... It's, it's, it's getting rough, yet we will rejoice. We may find, uh, find ourselves in problems with the law, yet we will rejoice. Those perfect marriages with the perfect picket fence and the two and a half kids, yet that may fall apart, yet we will rejoice. 
We may end up in financial distress, yet we will rejoice. Through it all, we have to tarry so that God's vision can speak. We must run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith. As Isaiah writes, even the youth shall faint and be weary, and young men and women shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. If we are visionaries like Deborah and running in our own race towards a God-given vision, then we must hold on until that vision speaks. We must hold fast to our vision and endure just like Jesus did on his way to the cross to die for our sins. Where would we be if he had quit? Let's approach life like Deborah, by being a honeybee and not a wasp, by being collaborative as we engage in ministry to maximize our impact, and by being visionary. The word of God for the people of God. The doors of the church are open.